Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the third chapter of James, verses 3 through 10. It can be found on page 981 in your pew Bible. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them. Yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on the fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. I'm glad that you are with us this morning. I want to begin our teaching time by telling you a story. A long, long time ago, back in the 18th century, there was a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. Now, now by all accounts, he was one of the greatest preachers in history. He could make the earth shake with his preaching. One of his contemporaries was a guy by the name of Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin records in his diary about a time he went to go hear George Whitfield preach. Now, he knew George Whitfield was a good preacher, and he knew George Whitfield was taking up money during this particular service to help fund a missionary society. And Ben Franklin records in his diary that he had covenanted with himself not to give Whitfield any of his money. So Ben Franklin goes to the service, Whitfield starts to preach, and Ben Franklin records in his diary, a few minutes into the sermon, I thought, maybe I'll give him some of my money. Halfway through the sermon, he said, maybe I'll give him a little more. He records in his diary that by the end of the sermon, Benjamin Franklin had poured every dollar he had on him into the offering baskets as they went by. Now that is a good preacher, amen? George Whitfield was a phenomenal, phenomenal preacher. Arguably one of the best in history, and yet, what I think is interesting about it is that for many of us, unless we study Christian history, we probably never heard the name of George Whitfield before. Another contemporary of Whitfield was a a guy by the name of John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodist movement. John Wesley pretty notoriously was not a great preacher. He had a tendency to be long-winded. I don't know anybody like that. He, uh, he was kind of a surly guy, too. Like, his personal interactions didn't always go well. And yet, today, around the world, there are a hundred million Christians who can trace their spiritual lineage back to the life and ministry of John Wesley. How is that possible? If he wasn't a great preacher, if he was kind of a surly guy, how is it possible that he and his followers have borne such fruit? The answer is this. John Wesley had this tremendous capacity to make following Christ simple. Not easy, but simple. 
He instituted three rules, three simple rules. He called them the general rules of the church. His rules for following Jesus Christ faithfully and fruitfully were these. First, do no harm. Second, do all the good you can. And third, stay in love with God. Do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with God. Whitfield was a tremendous preacher, but John Wesley left a legacy. Why? Because he made faith simple. I wonder if we desperately want to leave a legacy too. All right, listen. I know from sitting in places like this and listening to somebody else preach, I know there are a thousand things that run through our minds. Some of us are thinking about lunch and we're thinking about bills and we're thinking about relationships. I want to invite you to put all that stuff out of your mind for just a few moments because I believe that the conversation we're about to have may be the most important conversation you have this month or maybe this year. Have you thought about the kind of legacy you want to leave behind? Have you thought about the legacy? Not not a legacy that's, that's designed to build you and your memory up, but the kind of legacy that's going to build up Christ and his body. John Wesley left a legacy, and he taught us how to leave a legacy too, and it involves following three simple rules to help us build a legacy of faith. So throughout the next few weeks, we're going to talk about doing all the good we can, and we're going to talk about how we stay in love with God, but today we start with the first. First, do no harm. You know, there are a lot of ways in our lives that we could do harm, a lot of big ways that people do harm. We see this in the news all the time. We see political scandals and religious scandals. I think back to the the scandal with Bernie Madoff all those years ago where he he ended up stealing billions of dollars from hardworking people. Maybe the, the greatest scandal in modern history happened at the hands of Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich, the Holocaust, 11 million people's lives snuffed out just like that. I was thinking this week about all the great evils, the great harm that people can do, and it occurred to me that in reality, while those are indeed great harms, most of us can't, can't connect with them. And so while there are some great evil and great harms that can be done in this world, I wanted to spend our few moments together talking about just two ways that we are most susceptible to doing harm in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. The first way I think that we have a tendency to do harm is with our words. I love the way that James talks about this. Earlier in James James chapter 1, James says this, Those who consider themselves faithful and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 21 says, The tongue has the power of life and of death. Did you know that relative to its size, the tongue is the strongest muscle in the body? And relative to its capacity to do harm, the tongue is also the most dangerous muscle in the body. Almost 20 years ago now, a thousand firefighters convened on the Black Hills of South Dakota. They convened in order to put out a wildfire. It was the largest wildfire in the history of the Black Hills, 180 square miles up in smoke like that, 83,000 acres destroyed. It cost $9 million to put out the fire, $11 million to rebuild the infrastructure that was damaged by the fire. It was estimated that in those few days of the fire, $22 million worth of lumber went up in smoke. And it all came from one little match. A woman by the name of Janice was driving through 
the hills, the black hills, and she stopped to look at something beautiful. She lit a cigarette, she threw down her match, and as she got back in her car, unbeknownst to her, she had begun a wildfire. 180 square miles, 83,000 acres, all destroyed from one little match. In our scripture passage today, we heard James say, How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. One match can destroy a whole fire, and one tongue, one little muscle, can destroy a relationship, a family, a church, a community, a career, a reputation. You know, when we think about not using our tongues well, one of the things in church that we'll talk about from time to time is this sin called gossip. And I want to talk about gossip for just a moment with you. I think we tend to think as Christians that gossip is when we say something about somebody that isn't true. And that I think that is gossip. But I also think that gossip is saying something hurtful about someone when they're not there. It's sharing things about someone that they wouldn't want us to share. When we put people down around us, that's gossip. The point with gossip is this. What I'm saying about a person may be true, but that doesn't mean that I need to be saying it. This is what we learn in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is useful for building up. You know, friends, as followers of Christ, we need to be especially careful with the way we talk about other people. John Wesley said this. He said, of all the gossiping, religious gossiping is the worst. It adds hypocrisy to a lack of love and essentially does the work of the devil in the name of the Lord. Mm. That's what John Wesley said. I want to talk about another modern day prophet, Ann Landers. Listen to what Ann said about this. She said, people of high intelligence talk about ideas. People of average intelligence talk about things. People of low intelligence talk about other people. Ouch, Ann Landers! Our tongues can do a remarkable amount of damage just like that. And once the damage is done, the damage is incredibly difficult to repair. A man by the name of John Gottman is a famous relationship counselor and researcher. He spent 30 years looking at relationships in the context of families. And here's what he found out. He discovered that if if one spouse says something negative to another spouse, it takes five positive statements to undo the damage from that one negative statement. Which teaches us two things. First, if I said something nasty to my spouse on the way here this morning, I've got some work to do this afternoon. Amen? Secondly... It's sad, but it's true that in this case, the negative is five times more powerful than the positive. There was a young man who was hired to be a grocery store clerk. And when he got there on his first day, he was put in the produce section. And he was going about his work trying to figure everything out when this woman came up to him and she said, Sir, could I buy half a head of lettuce? And he said, ma'am, they're only 99 cents. You can buy a full head of lettuce for less than a dollar. She said, but I don't need a full head of lettuce. I just need half a head of lettuce. He talked unsuccessfully trying to, to talk her out of this, and it was it was not 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 something that was fruitful. So he said, after a while, he said, ma'am, I, I don't know. It's my first day. Let me go talk to my manager about this. So the clerk turns around. He goes to the back of the store to find his manager. Unbeknownst to him, the lady's following him. 
So he gets back to the manager. He says, listen, you're never going to believe this, but there's this crazy lady up front. She wants to buy half a head of lettuce. He saw the manager's visage change. His eyes got as big as saucers. The clerk realized the lady was standing right behind him. He said, but don't worry about it because this lovely lady right here, she wants to buy the other half. Would that be okay? (laughs) The words that we use can do damage. They can do damage like that. They can do damage quickly. And that damage is hard to repair. So how do we make sure we're doing no harm with our words in the first place? I want to talk about two simple strategies we can employ to try and do no harm with our words. And the first is this. If somebody offends me, I need to talk to them. Not about them, to them. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. You notice Jesus didn't say, send an email He didn't say, send him a message on the face page. That's what my mom calls Facebook, and I'm never going to call it anything else from now on. Face page, church. And you might say, well, there was an email or face page back then. True, but there were messengers and there were letters, but Jesus didn't tell people to send a messenger. He didn't tell them to send a letter. Jesus said, go, you, go. If you've been offended by somebody else, you, go and talk to them one on one. So I'm a little ashamed to admit that there have been times in my life where people have offended me, really gotten to me. And in those moments, I have had scathing conversations with those people in my head. You ever do that? Really, you set them right inside your own head. And you would say, well, why don't you go and talk to that person? The reason I don't go and talk to this person is because they know how wrong they are and they just need to sit there, be wrong in the midst of their wrongness, right? That's why. But in those moments, when I followed the command of my Lord Jesus to go and talk to the people who have wronged me, here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that the story I've been telling myself about that event is different than the story they've been telling themselves about that event. And the reality is that the truth probably lives somewhere in the middle. If we're going to have conversations the way Jesus commands us to, we're going to have to recognize that maybe we weren't as right as we thought we were. And maybe they weren't as wrong as we thought they were. But if someone harms us and we choose to speak poorly about them rather than to seek reconciliation with them, we have violated the teaching of Jesus. And in so doing, we've ceded any moral high ground we may have had. So how do we tame our tongues? First, talk to the person who's upset you. Second, Let's say this person really got under my skin. I mean, they really hurt me. What do I do then? Because I know if I go talk to them, oh, it's not going to go well. They might have to turn the other cheek. You know what I'm saying? So what do I do in that moment? What if I have to yell? I need to yell about somebody. Yell to God about them. Yelling to God is okay. There have even been times I've yelled at God. 
There's a, there's a word for yelling at God. You know what it's called? Prayer. Jesus said it this way. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our tendency is to want to hide how we truly feel from God. Think about how foolish that is. As if God doesn't already know. If we must yell, yell to God. Because there's an amazing transformation that takes place when I pray for my enemies. When I pray for my enemies, God often reminds me that I haven't always been innocent in this life. And God often reminds me that God loves that person just as much as God loves me. There are all kinds of ways we can do harm in our lives. One of the most powerful ways we do harm regularly is with our tongues, with our words. I want to invite us to covenant today as God's holy people to change. I'm not done. There's, there's something else I want to talk about with you, but this is such an important issue. I want to take a moment and could we just pause and pray together and confess this and ask for God's help to move on? Let's, let's pray. Holy God, we recognize there have been times in our lives when we used our words to tear people down instead of build them up. We used our, our, our words to curse instead of praise. We used our words to hurt instead of heal. Forgive us, oh God. Forgive us. And when we're hurt, oh Lord, help us to have the courage to follow your example and your teaching to go and confront the one who has hurt us and seek reconciliation. When that is too hard, help us to open our hearts to you. But God, do not, do not, do not let our tongues set this world ablaze with a fire of hate. As your holy people, your people chosen and forgiven from this day forward, help us to use our voices, our words only to build, never to tear down. We can't do it alone, but your Holy Spirit can help make it happen. Forgive us and help us to do better with our words. In Christ's name, amen. You know, a second area where I think we have a tendency to do harm in, in our lives is with our influence. Now, to talk about this uh, this reality of influence, I want to share a couple of stories uh, from, from recent events. Last Saturday, the CEO of Apple, a guy by the name of Tim Cook, delivered the commencement address at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and Tim Cook is, is a remarkable leader. There have been conversations about the fact that he, he may actually be as good, if not better, than, than the previous uh, leader, Steve Jobs, who was at Apple, who led them away from the, the edge of, of the, the cliff years and years ago. Tim Cook's a fantastic leader, and I'm confident there are a number of things I could learn from him, but I need to use his speech as a foil with you today, because one of the things, one of the tent tones of Tim Cook's speech to Tulane last week was he... He was very apologetic that his generation had not done more for their generation. Think about this for just a moment. In the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, the most powerful place ever to exist, a billionaire told a group of students graduating from a private, prestigious university that they had not been given enough. 
Sometimes I feel that the language of victimhood is becoming increasingly overused in our society. Make sure you hear me, church. There are real victims in this world. One out of every four women, one out of every seven men will experience domestic violence in the course of their lives. When we encounter people as the church of Jesus Christ who are victims, we need to do everything in our power to help heal them. We do. Take them in and love them. It's one of the reasons I'm so proud of the fact that we partner with a charity, a a wonderful ministry called Empower House. Empower House is a local ministry that helps care for people who are victims of domestic abuse and violence. And if you find yourself in a situation like that, I want you to know two things. First, it is not God's will for your life that you be a victim in that way. And secondly, that Empower House wants to help. So you can contact them directly. You can send them to someone you love. Send someone you love there, or you can contact the church and we'll help you get in conversation with them. There are real victims in this world, but I fear that more and more we are searching for opportunities to think of ourselves as victims when perhaps we are not. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I had a history teacher who was really weird. Good dude, great teacher, just weird. At the same time, I had a girlfriend who was pretty and smart, but not nearly as pretty and smart as you are. I just want you to know that. (laughs) And her name was April. And as you might imagine, I liked spending time with April more than my kind of weird history teacher. Therefore... I was regularly tardy to history class in high school. So much so, it became such a problem that my teacher decided I needed to be punished. And the way I was punished was through a working detention. So what I had to do is I had to to go around with the janitors after school one day and clean up all the classrooms. And I remember thinking to myself, this is over 20 years ago, but I still remember thinking to myself, this is not right. This is an injustice. I'm a good kid. I lead a Bible study four days a week before school. They'd be lucky to have more kids like me. You see what I did? I was being justifiably corrected. But I told myself I was a victim. I have amazing kids. Andy and I are blessed to have two beautiful children. And they're good kids. But this week we had some, some guests coming into town and with our schedules, we have to start cleaning our house early when guests are coming into town. So Tuesday night was room cleaning night. And one of our children thought that this was a violation of that child's personal rights that we had asked them to clean their, their room. And it created an opportunity for dad to have a conversation with this precious child about all that mom and dad do for this child and that child's need to contribute something to the family economy. My point in telling you that story is it's amazing to me how early we learn the language of victimhood. And when we create victims in ourselves, in our children, in the people with whom we share influence When we create victims where there is no true victim, that makes great problems. False victimhood robs us of energy by convincing us the world is against us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. 
In moments when we lure ourselves into falsely believing that we are victims, we cede our power and our agency. We cede our hope. And as followers of Christ, we have no right to give those things away. We can't give away our power and agency. We have been commanded by the power of the Holy Spirit to go and to overcome. We can't give that away. Our hope. Our hope. We can't give away hope. We're followers of hope. We're believers in hope. We're always a people of hope. Even when nobody else can see hope, we are people of hope. In the most dark, difficult places in our lives, even when we're standing in a graveyard, especially when we're standing in a graveyard, we are people of hope. Do you remember what happened in a graveyard? We are people of hope, church, and power and agency to overcome. I love the way that James puts it again in James chapter 1. He says, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you... Face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it has run its course, makes you complete. We could use our influence to teach people the language of victimhood or we could use it to put fuel in their tanks. See, there was another commencement speech given last weekend. This one was given at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. The speaker was a billionaire by the name of Robert Smith. Smith stood up and he gave this commencement address to these 400 graduates. And he said, I want to put some fuel in your tank. So I'm going to pay off all your student debt. Cost him $40 million. So what do we learn? The first thing is this. Invite a billionaire to be your commencement speaker. (laughs) Amen? That needs to happen. But the second, the second is the way that we use our influence and our power. One speaker placed graduates in a position of victimhood. The other prepared them for a better future. How will we use our influence? Listen, when people are truly victims, the church of Jesus Christ needs to surround them. We need to heal them and love them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, however, will we influence narratives of false victimhood that rob people of agency, power, and hope? Or will we put fuel in their tanks, empowering them in Christ? to climb the mountain that is in front of them and every mountain that comes afterwards. I want to finish with telling you a last story. I went this week to visit a friend of mine. I went to say goodbye. Um, sorry. My friend Bill is dying. Of cancer. He was first diagnosed with cancer back in the 90s. And he beat it. And then it came back. And he beat it again. And then it came back. And it came back. And it came back. And his journey is near an end. 
But along the way, the thing is that Bill, Bill could have adopted this idea of, of victimhood because cancer had ravaged him. But you know what he did instead? He said, I realized that my pain and my suffering can actually be used to help other people. And so Bill Matheny started a support group here at Ebenezer, a cancer support group for people who are facing cancer. He put fuel in their tanks. They love each other. They care for each other. They tell each other when they don't feel like they can go on that, that there's going to come a tomorrow. I love the way Oscar Wilde said it. He said, to influence another is to give part of one's soul to them. The last thing that I got to say to my friend Bill was this. I promise you that your legacy that you began at Ebenezer Church will continue. That this cancer support group will continue to be a place where we share hope. I wonder if you ever think about whether you'll be a person of legacy. I do. And not because I want accolade, but because I want those who are around me and those who come after me to know the surpassing greatness of life that is found in Christ's abundant life. John Wesley's followers were fruitful, so fruitful that today there are a hundred million Christians around the world who trace their spiritual lineage back to him. He left a legacy by teaching three simple biblical ideas. Do all the good you can. Desperately love God. But first... Do no harm. I pray that as we go forth from this place, as God's people, we will covenant this day to do no harm with our words and with our influence. Would you pray with me? Holy God, once again we confess that we haven't always been the people you've called us to be. Forgive us. And thank you for loving us anyway. But Lord, we want to leave legacies. We thank you on this Memorial Day weekend for all those who have come before us, who left a legacy of freedom and hope. We ask for your grace to leave a legacy by practicing a simple faith of loving you, of doing the good we can, and first, of doing no harm. So help us use those words to build one another up. Help us use our influence to put fuel in one another's tanks so that you may receive all the glory. In your name and for your sake we pray. Amen.